the normal American did not graduate from college and doesn't have an associate's degree. He or she perhaps attended college for one year or graduated from high school. She or he has a net worth of approximately 36000 about 6000 excluding home and vehicle equity, and lives paycheck to paycheck. She or he has less than $500 in flexible savings and minimal assets invested in the stock market. These are median statistics, with 50% of Americans below these levels. Nat, we are back at Made You Think. We are. Uh, for an episode that I think we've been building up to for a while, and this is a topic that's been touched on a lot. And when I heard about this book coming out and some of the politics around it, it seemed like a great fit for uh, for some of our recent discussions. Yeah, where did you uh, where did you first come across this book? I actually heard the so the the book obviously is the War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. And I heard him on Sam Harris's podcast, mm, Okay, uh, Waking Up, and I thought they had a good discussion there, and he had some interesting points and statistics, and that was when I texted you and said, hey, you know, we should check out this book and see if it'd be a good fit. And I think, it, I think it's one of the better overviews that I have seen. Uh, I haven't really read any other books dedicated to it, but thinking of articles that we've come across and things we've been talking about on and off for the last, I feel like six to eight months that this has been in the gestalt. Uh, this seemed like it covered it really well. And it's optimistic, but it's also, I felt fairly balanced. It's not, you know, hand wavy and like, oh my God, we have to do this. It felt more like, hey, this is the situation and this is a good solution. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I definitely thought he did an incredible job with, you know, setting the stage right, of like, of showing kind of what the problem is. And I think the magnitude of that problem, I do think, you know, there are some some assumptions being made there. But I think those assumptions are like nitpicky that, I, you know, my issues with those assumptions are nitpicky. They're not assumptions of the of the um, the issues, the assumptions I have an issue with are not the basic assumptions, right? It's more like the extent of some of those, uh, some of the automation that he's talking about. But I think at the end of the day, we would definitely agree that there is a problem and it's going to get bigger. So I think, yeah, I mean, we can talk about the nitpicky assumptions all we want, but honestly, those are just anybody's guess. I'm sure we'll dive into them as we as we get to those topics. Exactly. Yeah. But I think he did a great job of setting the stage for the the, the problem. And then I do think with the solution um, where he's talking about, you know, spoiler alert, um, he's he's pushing for universal basic income as being kind of a not a, a catch all solution, but as kind of in his opinion, the best solution to the the set of problems that's going to be facing the United States moving forward. Yeah, And, you know, I, I mean, if you've listened to the show for a while, uh, you know that Nat and I kind of both came from a place of not really thinking UBI was a good solution. At least, I mean, I don't want to speak for Nat, but I definitely came. I, I'd switched, I'd changed my position on this a few times, but I, I used to be very pro-UBI. Then I became very anti-UBI after reading Sovereign Individual. An anti, not in the sense that I don't think it's a good idea, but more in the implementation, um, which we'll get into here. Yeah, that was my pretty much my experience, too, was I, I'd say a year ago before we started this show, I was very generally pro the idea of UBI and then Sovereign Individual and a couple of other I think like articles or just ideas I'd come across made me way more skeptical of it. And I guess this book brought me back a little bit in the pro direction, but I think we'll still need to touch on some of those some of those concerns that I think we both still have that didn't feel like they got totally addressed here. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that. I'll save my my comment on that for, for when we get to that part of the book. But 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm fully swayed in the other direction again, but I'm like left feeling like, okay, this is a little murkier than maybe I was initially thinking. Because after reading Sovereign Individual, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, there's not a chance in hell that this is ever going to work. <laughs> my, my feeling towards it is kind of like my feeling towards democracy, I think, which is that I don't like it, but it might be the best worst option. Mm, yeah, you and Churchill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like, all right, I, I don't like this and I think there are issues with it, but it may be the best shot we have to avoid, you know, massive numbers of mass shooters and people dying in the streets and social revolution and all of that. Yeah. So to maintain like this existing system, this might yeah. be the sort of the only way to make it happen, which is, you know, to be fair, that's kind of what he was like implying at the end of the book, too. Yeah, it, it did feel like that was his push. Yeah, like he didn't seem like he was saying like, oh, this is like by far the best possible thing. But it's like, hey, if we want to keep this sort of forward progress going in this current system, this, you know, kind of might be what we have to do to make that happen. Yeah. And I think this is the best place to start because it's how he starts the book off. And I think it was fairly, I mean, I it was really surprising for me. I knew some of this stuff, but I didn't totally get it. But it was just kind of like how bad the current situation is already. Yeah. And I like how he used median statistics and not mean. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, I think like when you look at the country from a mean perspective, right, it's not actually that bad because you have massive, you know, massive amounts of wealth at the top. But then when you start looking at median, yeah, it's same, I had the exact same realization while reading that first part of the first whole part of the book was just sort of how dire the situation is for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, for most people, actually, it seems like. Yeah. And for, for lack of a better way of going through it, we should probably just start diving into some of the stats we have highlighted here. There's not a ton of narrative to this, so I apologize for that. But I, I, I feel like we do have to touch on most of them, uh, especially because so many of them are very masked uh, by other statistics. So like this first one that really surprised me is how low the labor participation rate is. So to be clear, there's unemployment rate, which I think is at, you know, four or 5%, right? Which is really good. But unemployment rate doesn't count people who are on disability and who are no longer looking for a job. So right. there's a massive number of people who are working age who are not looking for work anymore or who are just living off of disability. And apparently the labor force participation rates only at 63%, which is lower than almost all other industrialized economies and comparable to El Salvador and Ukraine. Right. So for any given working age person, there's slightly over a one in three chance that they've just left the job market entirely, which is bad. <laughs> I think it speaks to a couple of things. Like, so the fact that the unemployment rate is so low, it, it speaks to like, that's basically if you're looking for a job, you know, only 4% of people basically can't find one, it seems. But that doesn't count as not saying all the people who have basically selected themselves out of the job market via either, you know, as you, I think you mentioned disability, which we'll get into in a few minutes. But I also think that like, in some ways, though, Nat, it does speak to probably wages, or not wages, sorry, that's the opposite of what I'm trying to say, the, the benefits that people get from from the safety net in, in the United States, you know, can basically support what looks like, you know, what is that, like 37% of the population? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Plus, I mean, every kid in addition to that who's not part of the labor force participation rate. And I mean, when we say support, like, granted, people who are in this bucket of like, okay, you're collecting disability and 
food stamps to stay alive. Like it's not like you're supported, like you're able to stay alive, but it's not like you're having a, you know, fantastic experience with it. Yeah. You're not thriving, but he's got, you know, this next stat related to that, which is the half of American households already rely on the government for direct income in some form. Right. So you've got just over a third of people in the U.S. who have pretty much left the job market. And then that leads to about half of all households getting income from the government in some way, usually disability. Yep. You know, a certain amount of that is Social Security, too. Yep, exactly. That's what I was going to add. But just in terms of numbers, right, there's way more households that aren't in the Social Security age bracket yet. So. It's kind of like, I mean, it's a lot. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. And it's, a it, lot. it's something like in certain states, you've got 20% of all working age adults on disability. And he doesn't talk about it here as much in the beginning. But later on, he mentions that most of these disability claims are for kind of like muscular tissue issues, right? So, you know, like sore necks and things like that, or mood disorders, right? Like, anxiety or depression and there are huge teams of lawyers who make all of their money by helping poor people get on disability like that system is so crazy yeah i didn't realize the extent of that that was like a complete blind spot for me yeah and the the way they price it is so smart because the lawyers don't charge anything up front but they take a cut of whatever backdated disability you get when you get on the program so if I go to one of these lawyers today and I say, hey, I need to get on disability, they say, great, we'll take, you know, 50% of your back payments. And then in four or six months, when I get on disability, I'll get the four to six months that it took to get on it in back payments, you know, just as a lump sum from the government. Yep. And so that might be, you know, $6,000. And the lawyers just take half of that. And they've probably got everything standardized, probably takes the most no time. Yep. I'm sure it's like a very simple form for them to fill out. And they probably have go-to doctors in the region that they file their claims through who they know are just going to rubber stamp it. And they can just print money by helping these people get on disability. And then once you're on disability, you're basically getting, it sounded like around $12,000 a year uh, from the government. Which is basically what basic income would be. <laughs> yeah, it's basically his proposal for basic income. Yep. But the, the downside of it is that you can't work then because if right. if there's any sign that you are actually competent to work you lose your disability right so it creates a huge disincentive it's one of those yeah. things where it's like you get on it and you're probably not getting off or you just figure out ways to get income which are not trackable right like i was gonna say things like babysitting or you know just like things like that like i think uh he had even a, an anecdote of somebody who was like you know changing someone's light bulbs or like you know just like doing like little odd jobs yeah but you'd probably get paid in cash for something like that, right? And no one's tracking it. And it doesn't count as, it's not going to get you off of your disability. Right. And since pretty much all job creation in the last 10 years, he says 94% of all jobs created in the last 10 years were temp or contractor jobs, right? With no benefits. So you're not going to risk your $12,000 a year, no questions asked, check for a chance at a part-time contractor job. Right. Where you might make $7 an hour in some states. So the incentives are really screwed up. And, and that's why it's got disability has something like a less than 1% churn rate annually. <laughs> Once people get on it, no one gets off. Yep. It's like the anti anti SaaS startup. <laughs> yeah. It's like we got such a low churn rate, but that's because we're paying our customers and not, <laughs> and not charging them. Exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah. So yeah, it creates a huge disincentive. I actually even wonder, um, cause the way he was describing it too, like the people who get on disability sort of maps perfectly to the areas with the biggest job losses. Right. Too. So I wonder to what extent the government actually recognizes that this is effectively another type of welfare program effectively to, you know, to basically cover up a lot of the job losses, not cover up. That's the wrong word, but compensate for compensate. Yeah. 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 Cause I think he said somewhere Yeah, here we go in, in Michigan. Uh, so these claims for disability are highest in the old manufacturing states like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Michigan in particular of the 310,000 residents who left the workforce between 2003 and 2013. Uh, oh, half of them. Yeah. Half of the 310,000 went on disability. So it's definitely what it is, is that these people lose their jobs and source of income and they can't move into another line of work. And this is just a way to get like free government or free money from the government for the rest of your life. Yep. Which pretty, pretty sweet deal if you don't have many other options available to you. Well, and it's kind of necessary too in those areas. Like, can you imagine if this wasn't there? Like what would have ha- I mean, you'd probably have, like large scale riots all around the country. You'd have like a Detroit situation in a lot of other cities. Yeah, exactly. And so it's almost like like I'm guessing the federal government recognizes that this is like kind of like a Band-Aid that they're putting on. Or at least someone within the federal government recognizes that. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like they try to fight the fraud too strongly. No, I didn't get that sense either. It seems like they're just letting anyone hop on. Yeah, and there's probably like some automatic catch if someone gets a job, right? There's probably some automatic catch of like, okay, well, now you're not getting it. It's probably if you get a W-2. Yeah, exactly. And that's like something that's so easy to, you know, match up. But whereas, you know, they're probably not like checking that, oh, did your disability get better, right? Like, right. do you no longer have depression anymore? Or, you know, like they're probably not really checking that type of stuff. They're not making you go to a doctor every three months to renew your disability claim. Exactly, right. Yep. So it doesn't seem like they're really fighting that part of it, which, you know, is probably, you know, uh, I guess before reading this book, I would have been like, oh, that's that's messed up. But now I'm kind of like, OK, I kind of their version of basic income. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of necessary, unfortunately. Yeah. And then I also like he did this um, kind of in the middle or maybe it was still in the beginning of the book where he was kind of talking about the whole like retraining stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like a nice myth. Huge myth. With a lot of these people. That comes a little later, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's in like chapter... Well, he touches on it a lot. Right. It's sort of like all through this beginning and middle section. Yeah, I mean, that would have been my other thing before. It would have been like, okay, well, you have all these people who, you know, maybe what they were trained to do is work in like a steel plant, but, you know, maybe their plant closed down or something. So now what can they go do? And my answer, you know, maybe four or five years ago might have been like, oh, they can go to like a coding boot camp, right? And like... yeah. But that um, he did a good job sort of showing that that's not really an actual solution for 99% of the people who've lost their job. Right. I, I guess the stat was, uh, or he didn't give a stat, but it just said that studies have shown that retraining programs as currently practiced tend to show few, if any, benefits. But the the mental or the thought experiment he gave that I thought was even more helpful was where he says that the test is not, will there be new jobs we haven't predicted yet that appear uh, of course, there will be. The real test is, will there be millions of new jobs for middle-aged people with low skills and levels of education near the places they currently reside? And the answer to that seems almost certainly no. 
And I think that's one of the big distinctions between this technological industrial wave and the last ones, because people compare it to, you know, oh, well, when cars came along, you know, buggy drivers could still do work. And it's the answer to that is sort of, yes, they could, because there were other low skilled, you know, blue collary type jobs similar to being a buggy driver. But if automation is taking all of the low skill blue collar work at once, then there's nothing really to transition into. The only people related to those lines of work who will still have something to do are the technicians who know how to repair the machinery, maybe, or, you know, coders working on it. And even they, over time, will get kind of spun out. So there's not the same potential for jobs to be replaced that I think there was in past industrial shifts like this. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's not the same. um, Well, I think I've said this maybe on an earlier episode, but humans kind of are like the ultimate generalists. And that's been very useful for kind of all time of humans. Um, But the big downside of that, right, is like we're just not as good at any one thing as like, well, not always, right? But I'm not I'm not going to include creative things uh, just yet. But let's say like we're not as good at even potentially being a repairman, right, as a robot would be in many instances. So yeah, I mean, yeah, you're definitely not as good as making at making a car, for example, right? I mean, look at a lot of like the new car factories are so automated. Any kind of factory, right, is becoming so automated, and even like. I mean, uh, are, how familiar are you with like the Amazon warehouses? Have you have you seen some of those videos? I haven't, no. So they have like armies of workers, right? Like like humans. Mm-hmm. And they, they do a lot of the same kinds of things that Walmart does, like, which is where, I mean, this is a tangent we could go on, but they get a free pass a lot of times where Walmart doesn't. But Amazon employs like a lot of really, really low wage labor at the same wages that like Walmart does. So basically people who are getting paid, but still getting welfare. Yeah. They do a lot of that, but Amazon has been very clear about the fact that like they're actively working and funding things that would replace those workers. So it's kind of like, you know, and they've tested that as well. I think I don't quite know why they haven't implemented it that widely yet. Maybe the technology is just not there. But yeah, they they like want to automate their warehouses. And it's kind of I mean, it seems like something that a robot or, you know, a combination of robots could do very, very well, right? Like you order something online, it's in a specific part of the warehouse. It gets put on a specific truck and especially imagine if that truck is self-driving, right? Like there's just so much of that that is a repetitive task, which he keeps hammering on, I would say, in the beginning of the book, that anything that's a repetitive task can effectively be automated at some point. Yeah, which is, I think, the good wake-up call for a lot of white-collar workers, too, because exactly there is that notion that, oh, you know, we're, we're safe because we're not driving trucks or fulfilling orders at McDonald's. And his point is that it's not really about white-collar versus blue-collar. It's routine versus non-routine. Yep. And he says that routine jobs of all stripes are those most under threat from AI and automation. And in time, more categories of jobs will be affected. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, wealth advisors, traders, journalists, and even artists and psychologists who perform routine activities will be threatened by automation technologies. So if you do anything remotely repetitive or systematizable, I think that's a word. (laughs) We'll make it one. (laughs) You're you're at risk too. Yeah. I mean, my my mom and I have talked about this a bit because she's, she works at a law firm and, uh, you know, we we started talking about it once and she said, oh, well, you know, a machine really couldn't do the stuff that we do. And I said, well, what if you had a machine that could replace all of your paralegals and first year associates to handle all of your research and pulling out relevant sections of 
old cases and briefings and things. And she said, okay, yeah, like one could probably do that. And that would reduce probably personnel by 90%. Right. Which is, which is a lot. Cause there's so many people who are doing that kind of research. Right. So you'll, you'll still have the super high, you know, level partners and stuff who are having to be innovative in the field. But a lot of the very entry level people will get replaced which kind of creates a, an issue because then how do you train new high level people, right? Like no very skilled doctor or lawyer or, you know, marketer just showed up at that level, right? <laughs> right. They had to do the repetitive stuff first to build some of that, I think, experience. And so how do you make the move then if you can't get those jobs? I don't know. Well, I mean, that's a really good point. And, uh, Forget if it was a movie or just like a short story that I read once. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I think it was some type of science fiction, but it was like imagining like a distant future where basically nobody really understood like how the computers did what they did or really even what they are because nobody had to like build new ones. Right. It was kind of like it, it was imagining a future where computers could basically create new computers and write code. But then something there was like some bug or some issue that happened and they just like couldn't there was like one person who was like a computer historian or somebody who like actually understood like what was going on under the hood. But it makes you think right where it makes you think. Uh-huh. <laughs> Take a shot. I didn't do that on purpose. I promise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it sort of makes you think about how uh, exactly what you said. Right. Like so imagine a future where all sort of like routine tasks are are automated, but then if anything goes wrong or you need any kind of variation, who is sort of like going to have that experience level to know what's going on at both the routine level and the high level and make those connections? Because right now, I would say that's what makes like highly experienced people very valuable. Like for, for example, like you, right? Like you have a team of writers that you are managing, but if any one of them gets stuck in a routine or I would just say more like lower level task, you can step in and, and help because you've done that before. Right. Yeah. And it's like, how would you get to this sort of high level management skill level, right? Without having done the repetitive task? I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> I guess the goal would be for the computers to rise to that level fast enough to never need another generation of high level doctors, lawyers, people like that. Yeah. Which is kind of scary to think about. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we're, we're not going to train any new human lawyers because the computers will just figure all of it out for us and then the computers are literally the lawmakers right <laughs> seems concerning <laughs> yeah for understandable reasons it also makes you think like uh why i don't know maybe this is way too speculative but at a certain point if you follow that train of thought far enough it makes you wonder like why you would even need humans like why would the computers keep the humans around so they have someone to create laws for yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> then they're the ones programming us but do you only need one human then like how is there a minimum threshold yeah how many humans do you need yeah exactly i don't know when, whenever i play the sims i like having you know larger families and cities of people to control i feel like <laughs> computers will want at least a large enough population to be entertained by you know the silly shit we do but see, that's your puny human brain. So maybe they need a few billion people to be entertained. That's a good point. Yeah. They'd be much harder to entertain. In which case, we're good. We're set then. Dude, maybe that's already happening. Maybe that's what the internet is doing. Is that the... Maybe that's what it is. The emergent hive mind of the internet is just screwing with us for its own amusement. 
<laughs> creating chaos on a global scale. Yep. Or I, what if like half the memes are just like generated by the computer yeah. just for like entertainment purposes? Let's see what they do with this one. <laughs> All of those Russian hackers are just like rogue code in, in Facebook and Wikipedia and stuff deciding to screw <laughs> with humanity. <laughs> That's like when you purposely mess up your Sims life. Yeah, exactly. Delete the ladder into the pool. It's like, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> swim. <laughs> Man, that's uh, a <laughs> that's a sadistic sadistic Sims game that you have going on over there. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, okay, then he kind of goes from there to. Well, was there any other thing in the, the initial stats section you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, I mean, I think the other thing we're touching on because the the one thing that I really want to drive home is just how different the country really is than most of our listeners expect. Yeah, and another one of these things is education. Right. So the the average American is not a college graduate, not even like an associate's degree. So if you think of your five best friends, the odds of them all being college graduates, if you took a random sampling of Americans, would be about a third of one percent. Right. Point zero zero three is wild. Yeah. Is, yeah. And I mean, all of my best friends went to college. Right. I mean, yeah, same. All of my friends. I can I know I have three friends that didn't go to college. That I can think of off the top of my head. But I, I honestly, like, I don't know if they even count because they're all running their own businesses. Right. right. Well, I guess they count, but it's like. They uh, count, but it's not like in the way that this is yes. portraying it. Right. It's not like half of Americans don't go to college because they're moving out to Silicon Valley and like starting startups. Right. Right. Exactly. They're not going because they can't afford it or they don't have the, you know, time means, intellectual means, whatever. Which is why I do think that his. His assumption, or not his assumption, sorry, a lot of people's assumptions when it comes to UBI, which I mean, we'll definitely get more into this, but one of the assumptions that people make is like, oh, everyone will just be starting businesses, right? If they didn't have to, you know, becoming a poet or an artist or an entrepreneur. And it's like, that probably is not true. Yeah. In most cases, right? Like, I mean, it's probably exactly what you said. It's like the three friends you have are probably the outliers and not the rule to of people who didn't go to college, you know? Yeah, I think we'll we'll get into that more later, right? Because that is a common, in my opinion, sort of like lazy response to what happens if you give most or at least 50%, not 50%, like if you give, yeah, probably 20 to 30% of Americans enough money to not do the job they're doing anymore, right? Like what happens then? Right. And it's, it's a very hard thought experiment because we haven't really done it. But I don't think that everyone suddenly like becomes entrepreneurs. Yeah, I would agree with that. He's got this great section here that we read at the beginning of the episode, right? That the normal American didn't graduate college. They maybe went for a year, graduated high school. Their their net worth, not their income, their net worth is approximately 36000 right? So like their entire net worth is less than I would imagine most of the people listening to this make in a year, right? Yeah. And the average person also lives paycheck to paycheck and would have a really hard, like they'd be messed up for months if they had to suddenly spend $500. Yeah, which is where a lot of the like healthcare debate becomes so existential, right? For a lot of people, because it's like, I mean, health bills are so expensive, right? Whether even if you have insurance and if you even if you don't have insurance, right? And uh, well, especially if you don't have insurance. And so when you combine that with the fact that, you know, the average American has like $500 in assets that they can actually spend, 
meaning effectively cash savings, right? I mean, that's the sense I got from that number. A trip to the emergency room is basically going to send you into debt. Yeah. For months or years even. Yep. If you're ever even going to pay it back. Yeah, exactly. You might just default on it. Yeah. In which case, everyone else is paying for it anyway. Well, exactly. And here's the wild thing, right? 50% of people are below these levels. Yeah. These are all median numbers. So that's that's where it gets really crazy to me. Just like the, the median salary is what, $31,000? Uh, yes. Yeah. Median personal income in the US was thirty one grand, which means that half of Americans earn less than that. And I think, you know, in, in our networks, right, if... Uh, Okay, I can't speak for everyone listening to the podcast, but at least I know that when I was graduating college, you know, kids who were getting $60,000 a year salaries were disappointed, right? Right. I mean, we also went to a, a, I would say, not an average school. No, no. I mean, (laughs) it definitely affects that. (laughs) We're definitely in that, like, obnoxious tech elite, whatever, but it it just shows the perspective, right? Right, exactly. That you can kind of be in the top 5% of the country, but still feel poor. Right. And right. you can't really imagine what life is like for the half of the country that makes less than 31K a year. Yeah. Although I would love to see that like mapped out versus cost of living. Cause like, that's fair. I mean, I know some people, I know some people who made 60 and then moved to uh, like New York, right? Or to like San Francisco, right? And that would be, uh, well, actually, my first job in California would made 42K and I felt poor as shit. But like, I was probably still doing better than, you know, most of the people that, he's talking about in this in this book, which is wild to think about. Yeah, because I at least had like insurance and like all that, all that necessary stuff. Plus, I had, you know, my own familial safety net, which is something a lot of people don't have either, right, where their parents might have a similar situation. It's true. That makes a big difference. Yeah, their parents might also not have any savings. And they might not have any savings. It's like, you know, you really don't have a safety net. And so yeah, like, I can definitely see like, you know, somebody making 60 versus the average income being 31, right? You're obviously in the top 5, 10%. Um, but I would be curious to see this mapped out versus cost of living because I've always been curious, like people who are teachers or police officers or I don't know, just some like very average wage job, how they live in these sort of tech elite cities. Yeah. Very curious how that works. Like are the wages just higher in those places? Like does a teacher make I don't know, 90K or something in New York City or I I looked it up and the median individual income in New York City is about 51K. So it's higher. And then is that split up by do you do you know if there's differences by borough? I'm assuming like Manhattan. Oh, almost certainly. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing I would guess Manhattan being like, I don't know, 80, 75, probably 75, 80. Let me see. I wonder if we can find it here. Yeah, I'm going to look it up real quick. Manhattan. Wow. 66.7. Yeah. And Brooklyn's is 44. I believe that. Which means you're actually better off being in Brooklyn because the the cost of living in Brooklyn's about half of what it is in Manhattan. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. A little bit more. Yeah, like two thirds, two thirds, but still it's quite good. So then you're relative. Um, but dude, I could not imagine it says 70,000 annual income is um, is considered. So let's say 67. Right. I think mm-hmm. was what year was that? 2014. I think I found a more recent number that was like 70K okay. in Manhattan. But still, that's for an, a median income for a family of four. Oh, wow. That's a household income. Okay. How the... <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Well, to be fair, Manhattan does include like the Bronx and stuff, right? Does it? I don't... No, it won't include the Bronx. No, but it would include... No, it's not the Bronx. It would include the Bronx, but it would include like the hundreds, low hundreds. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that probably like... 
I mean, as we know, like in New York, in Manhattan in particular, like the neighborhoods have very different pricing. Right. Yeah. So it could be, it might not be as bad as we're imagining, <laughs> but I'm still, I'm sure it's still not like great. It's also family income would be affected by uh, single young people living in Lower East Side with a bunch of friends, right? That's a good point too. Yeah. Cause I think household income technically means family income too. Uh, don't quote me on that. But you could have a bunch of kids making 40 to 50K a year living in Lower East Side with like three friends in two bedroom apartments, right? Which some people do. Yeah. And then so then their household income would count as more. Yeah. Because you'd add it all up. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm saying their household income would still count as less. But they would be able to make it. They would be able to. Oh, yeah. Because they'd still be filing as their own. They'd be able to make it work. Yeah. They'd still be filing separately. So. Right. But they'd be able to make it work because they're splitting that cost by four four other people or three other people. Exactly. Yeah, so that's that's kind of a, a, a dire situation. And I like that he criticizes, too, this idea that people in areas that lose jobs can just start doing contract work online. Because anyone who's tried to do that knows that it's an absolutely miserable experience, especially if you are a remotely perfectly competitive skill. Like If you're doing something remotely perfectly competitive, then getting work online from places like Upwork and Freelancer is just miserable it's basically not going to happen yeah it's not going to happen right i mean from a price standpoint like you just can't out compete somebody in the philippines yeah on a price basis almost anything you can do somebody else in the world can do for a quarter of the price and faster unless you're very skilled at what you're doing right so and all everyone who's very skilled at what they're doing is not the people who are going to be at issue from a lot of this automation so and that I don't hear this argument that much, but I can see somebody making it, especially like a San Francisco person, right? Saying that, oh, you know, all the truck drivers can just like go on Upwork and be virtual assistants. Like probably not. Probably not. <laughs> because you can get a much better VA from the Philippines for $4 an hour who will be like way more pleasant to work with and, you know, is through like an agency where you can have someone 24-7 and... Like you're not going to live anywhere in the U.S. very comfortably on four dollars an hour. No, because that that Philippine will that Filipino will also be a college grad and everything. <laughs> and right. most of the people competing from the U.S. won't be. Well, and the other thing of just like think about what a virtual assistant today needs to be able to do. There's like a lot of almost like sort of tech skills that they need and like tools yeah. that they need to be able to use. And yeah, it's just like I, I just, and also, I mean, keeping it even more basic, like a truck driver has not spent their entire life talking to people and trying to make their lives easier right it's very different right for a living and whereas somebody who's been a va for even like a year right would have spent that entire year doing that so yeah yeah i don't i i don't buy that argument really at all i found an amazing va two weeks ago who lives in sri lanka charges five dollars an hour and he it took him like a day to get up to speed on WordPress and Webflow to transfer like all of my blog content from my WordPress site to my Webflow site. Oh yeah. You've been working on that, I remember. So yeah. Yeah. Like and you know, which required him to, you know, understand image formatting and some HTML and CSS stuff, navigating WordPress, navigating Webflow, like not, you know, super high skill stuff, but at least like middle technical skill, right? Not not just like wrote boring data entry relatively complex stuff and he picked it up super fast like took feedback really well and got the whole project done you know way faster than i ever would have in my free time and yeah like only five dollars an hour 
you really can't compete with that kind of help in if you're living in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I I've talked to people who are designers who've tried to go on Upwork for just maybe especially when they're first getting started, mm-hmm. just to try to get some clients. It's just like you you just can't make it work economically yeah. for yourself. Yeah, so I I don't buy that being the way that it could work. I mean, I could see somebody very skilled doing that. But then again, you're probably not in this situation if you're very skilled. Like if you're a very skilled developer, right, you could probably find work digitally. But then you're probably also not part of this group that he's talking about here. Right. Anybody who could make it work on a place like Upwork in the US has better options available to them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the that's a tricky thing. And that's where, you know, I don't buy like, I mean, it's a nice vision, right? I wish it would it would work, but it just doesn't seem to work. Um, yeah. I mean, unless there's just like a type of job we're completely overlooking, I, I just don't see how a platform could really help that. You could earn and trade goods in online games, which we will get back to. <laughs> you, you know, Nick, right? You've talked to Nick. Nick. Uh, I'll, I'll spare his last name for the podcast, but uh, who I went to high school with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't met Nick, but I, I have spoken with Nick via Slack several times. Yeah, he, he got really into that in high school and he made like in the five figures. Wow. Collecting and trading goods and digital games. So it is actually a viable way to make money. Wow. Yeah. Although probably not at scale for this number of people. But yeah, some no, people. No, no. Some people. <laughs> a few people can do really well in it. Maybe for some professional esports players as well. Yeah. Well, professional esports players make a ton of money. Yeah. It's only going up too. So, but again, that'll be a small subset of the population. Yep. There can only be so many like top streamers on Twitch. Exactly. So uh, as Taleb says, extreme stun versus mediocre stun. Exactly. Ones where, yeah, I think actually that's the bigger theme here that like just the world in general is moving in that direction too. That's like, that's like the second thing beyond automation, right? That like every, every field is kind of moving towards extreme stun where there's sort of a winner take all effect just to lesser or, you know, some, some industries are lesser extent, some are greater extent, but in general, it feels like everything's moving in that direction. And actually, the the video game streaming is a perfect example because when you log on to Twitch, it shows you the most popular streamers that are on at that moment. Yep. And so you, most people will just pick whoever is at the top of the chart right then and watch them, which is how you get certain streamers having 500,000 people watching them at once and making like six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000 a month between their streaming fees and their affiliate deals and all of that. Right. But then you've got, you've got maybe five or 10 streamers making that much. And then you've got tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people trying to get into streaming and not getting anything because, you know, one streamer can entertain the entire video game watching market if, yep. you know, they wanted to. Whereas it's kind of like, you know, if there's a national news station, you don't need local news stations in every state. And we're moving more and more in that direction where one person can just eat up more of the market, which concentrates, obviously, profits and revenue and everything, fewer and fewer people. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like that with uh, it was kind of like that with Twitter in the early days, too, where like when you'd first make a Twitter account, right, they would show you basically like, remember, they try to get you to follow like a certain number of people. Right, right. And those people would all be like the most popular Twitter accounts. So you would have this, yeah, like winner take all effect for sure. And then those people would get more followers from that. Yeah. So you can get to the top of the market and eat up all the money. But it seems like the other thing that will still be around, too, are low end service jobs that would be hard to automate. So stuff like being a masseuse or 
gardening, right? That stuff, I think, will take a lot longer to go away. And I wonder how much of the economy will move into more of those types of roles. Because there, there is that potential for, uh, especially if some of this UBI stuff goes into place, you know, people will have a bit more discretionary spending to use on services from other people. And then the question will be that will we see an even bigger service economy than we see right now? That's a good point. Like if there is more money there, then maybe there'll be more demand for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good that's a good point. I mean, my other question then related to that would be like, would those jobs have high enough wages, which would disincentivize people from sort of getting on? Oh, you're saying in a UBI world, right? I'm saying in a UBI world. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. I was talking about like this. I was going to go to like the disability side. Right. And be like, if you're basically going to make the same as you would make on disability, you'd probably just be like, why am I? going to this job. <laughs> yeah. Or at least some people would. But I could see a I could see a UBI world where, you know, you might live off of a mix of UBI and, you know, being a massager or dog walker and you just take like a few jobs that you enjoy per week, but you don't have to, you know, be working constantly and then you kind of get to blend it that way and then we might have more service opportunities available because it'll be easier to hire people for some of those service jobs. And maybe it would be like a bigger gig economy thing too, right? Because so many people are making money doing gig work now. Yep. Right? Like I'm just amazed by the number of people working for Rover and WAG and the dog walking apps in our neighborhood. You just see them out all the time. And that's like a big source of extra income, I think, for a lot of people who either aren't making enough from their job or maybe you're in between jobs or they might just like hanging out with dogs or they like hanging out with dogs. Yeah. But I mean, these people are out hanging out at the dog park at, you know, noon on a Tuesday. So they're either like me and just like taking the break in the middle of the day and their job lets them do that. Or, you know, that's, it's gotta be one of their main sources of income. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, and that's also one that I would have a hard time seeing like automated in the near future. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to like have a dog walking robot take Pepper for a walk. That would be <laughs> kind of creepy if this little like, robot showed up at the door and put out its hand for the leash. I'd be yeah, that I wouldn't like that future very much. <laughs> Careful man, it's right around the corner. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course by then you'd have like a robot dog that doesn't need to be walked, but that you can't tell it's a robot. It'd be like some Westworld shit, you know? Yeah. Why don't we just have robot humans while we're at it, too, at the same time? So the robot dog walker comes, picks up the robot dog from a robot human <laughs> or a cyborg human. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need to go to the bathroom, doesn't need to be walked. It's just always affectionate, never misbehaves. They'll probably get boring quickly, right? Yeah. It'd be like uh, that Twilight Zone episode where the guy dies and then you know he's in you know the afterlife and all his dreams are coming true and he's winning at all the poker games he plays and beautiful women are throwing themselves at him and then by the end of the episode he realizes he's actually in hell right not in heaven yep i love that one it'd be like that would be like ah, oh, no i want i want a dog that's occasionally an asshole because then i right. like them much more when they're well behaved right exactly <laughs> uh, all right let's see so i think the middle of the book he's sort of he, I mean, he the the first third of the book is really about the economic, I think, situation of the country, right? Which is that all of these types of jobs are going to go away. It's already pretty bad with a lot of people not making much money. And then in the middle of the book, it's sort of about almost like cognitive and socioeconomic psychological situation and how that may be affecting things. Yep. 
because there was there's some other stuff in here less related to money more about kind of how we think about work and life right now and you know one of those is how much of talent and money is getting like hyper concentrated so he's got you know he's got this kind of joke early on where he says the smart people in the United States will do one of six things in six places finance consulting law tech medicine or academia in New York SF Boston Chicago LA or DC right i would say that 90% of the people that i know from college went to one of those six cities yeah there's a few who go to you know Austin or Boulder or maybe Houston Dallas Raleigh Dallas is surprisingly robust, but definitely the majority of people are, yeah, in these six cities. Yeah, at least 80% yeah. of, I'd say, grads from where we went to college, from most you know top-tier schools, it seems. They all end up doing these same things in the same place. Now, I will say, though, I wonder how that will change as we get older, because I could definitely see like people leaving those cities mm-hmm. as, you know, as maybe they have families or things in their life change. You know, I could definitely see that changing, but I think we're starting to see that exodus. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right. So maybe, well, like Austin in particular comes to mind, right? With the out of these six, it's not in here. And I know a lot of people who moved to Austin. So I could see, you know, I could definitely see there being like these cities being where things are concentrated. But then as you build your own sort of brand and, and your own, um, I don't know, your own network or something, you're able to work from wherever or, you know, I, I think that'll be for sure. You're able to work from wherever. So you don't necessarily need to be in these higher cost cities. Um, but you definitely find a lot of companies concentrated here. Right. And he's got this stat somewhere else. So it's basically that 75% of all venture capital money goes to Massachusetts, California, and New York. And the rest of the country has to fight for the remaining 25%. Right. It's there's a there's sort of a self-reinforcing loop with a lot of this stuff where all the smart people go to these cities because that's where the big jobs are. And then they stay there to start their companies because that's where the money is. And then the money stays there because the people are staying there. Right. And honestly, I feel like Pittsburgh has this problem right now, which is that there's no way to start that flywheel in the city to get smart kids to stay. And so you end up with a lot of like, very mediocre startups staying there because they're the ones that sort of don't make it out to SF. And it's hard to change that loop because nobody wants to be the first mover and stay in a weak city and unnecessarily complicate their life and their fundraising. I would say Pittsburgh has sort of like jumpstarted a bit by bringing in a couple of big companies, which has brought in some money, right? Yeah. And I think that sort of can be the uh, like, okay. So if you look at it in isolation, it's just the startup side, you, then you need to have like an exit. But then what happens is exactly what you said, right. Is like a lot of the ones that end up making it have left by the time they've exited. Right. And then the money is not going to flow back into Pittsburgh. Right. But what can sort of jumpstart it is I would say like, well, Pittsburgh has seen Uber come in and Google, obviously I think was the first one. And that sort of has brought both talent and money into the ecosystem. So I think that could jumpstart it. But I was going to mention uh, last year I went to Lincoln, Nebraska for a conference and like it's not even a Pittsburgh sized success story, but I was kind of shocked at what they've put together there. And, you know, to be clear, I don't think it's like the majority of the city is participating in the tech economy there, but it was just not what I was expecting. So basically they have they have like a couple like anchor companies, I would say, in Lincoln. And what these companies are, you know, there's like one that I think it's like some type of database that consolidates like 
every single loan made across the U.S. or something. Kind of like, have you ever heard of there's a company that does that for flights? Like every single flight goes through this, like a central company. Um, have you ever heard of that company? I always forget the name, but they basically are, they provide like the software infrastructure for every single flight that gets booked. Yeah, I've heard something about this. So there's a, there's one for loans and that company is like based in Lincoln. And so, you know, they're a pretty decent sized company. Then there's a couple other like decent sized companies plus a university all in sort of the same city. And they had like, pretty robust community of I would just say like the same kind of job titles that you would see in a Pittsburgh type of city. So they had designers, they have like developers, freelance writers, like they just had like a bunch of different people. And you know, I wouldn't say it's like thriving at the level of like a San Francisco or New York, but they had a fairly self-sustaining, fairly small but self-sustaining community there where people who kind of had gone to that college, right, were staying in the area. Like there were some people I talked to who had been there for like 20 years and then started a company there. And it's not like a massive venture capital type of company, but it's like sustainable business. And that was kind of interesting to see. And there were some cool companies out of there. I mean, to me, it really showed that like because the Internet exists, you can kind of do cool stuff from wherever. But like that doesn't that does not negate the sort of uh, what is it? The flywheel. Is that the analogy you used? Yeah. It doesn't negate that effect that you do see in sort of the. I would say the six cities that he mentioned. I actually wouldn't even include Chicago in that in that group. I would actually just say five. Yeah, maybe say five or maybe not even LA. It could even be Austin now. Yeah, Boston just has most of the biotech. I think they get by far the most biotech funding. Mm. So I think they just have a ton of that. But so maybe they get like from a venture capital dollars standpoint, they get a lot. But maybe yeah, I wouldn't I would not include for I would say for, for like the tech side, right? I wouldn't include Boston or Honestly, I wouldn't even include L.A. or D.C. unless D.C. gets Amazon, which is possible. It's possible. Yeah. But I mean, Chicago, I wouldn't say has a massive tech scene from what I know. I mean, maybe I'm just being ignorant about that. Well, to, to be fair, he's not saying tech. He's saying mm, he's saying consulting, law, finance. Yeah, yeah. Finance, consulting, law, tech, medicine or academia. And when we add in especially law, medicine and academia, that's when you get a lot more of Boston, D.C., Chicago, um, a lot of people who do consulting go to LA and Chicago too. academia that can be Chicago, Boston, DC. So I, I think that's where those ones get in there. Well, law in particular, I would say like law in DC or just, yeah, law in particular, you get a lot of people in DC. Yeah. And consulting. So I, th- I think the list makes sense, but yeah, I think you're right. We are seeing it spread more. I've got uh, a few friends who live in, you know, much smaller, but still major cities around the country. I've got a buddy in Boise, Idaho, oh, cool. who says it's actually like really coming up as kind of a tech startup area. That's where uh, maybe they're doing similar stuff to Lincoln, because like I was probably. shocked when I went to Lincoln. I mean, it wasn't massive at all, but it was just they had this nice little community there that was, you know, they were like retaining people. That was the biggest thing that I was curious to see. Right. Like smart people who've who'd built, you know, not like, again, not venture capital funded businesses, but like successful businesses still. Yeah. And then they stayed. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of like Boise, uh, Raleigh, Charlotte, Richmond, Boulder, Denver, Seattle's up there too. Um, there's like a, a, I think there's more of them that are coming up. So we, we might be starting to see some of this exodus back, probably partially because of just the so insane cost of living. Right. And how good of a cost of living you can have in other cities while maintaining pretty much the same salary. I mean, we're moving to Austin in two months and we're going to have the exact same income with no state income tax and 
about half the cost of living, right? right. Like that's a really meaningful improvement in standard yes, of living. Definitely. And I think that option is becoming more and more possible for more and more people as more stuff moves online. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then I also think it's like the other thing is, I mean, we can't underestimate the impact of of the Internet where, you know, in the past you might have had to go to like a physical place to meet new people or meet interesting people or smart people. But now it's like, I mean, you can just hop on Twitter and talk yeah. to interesting people all day. All of my favorite podcast co-hosts I met on Twitter. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, right? Like amazing Twitter. I mean, dude, Twitter is amazing. Then like. When you factor in Slack, right, and the fact the, the the ability to have a remote team, you can still get some of that team feel. Yeah. Without being in the same physical location. Yeah. I mean, there's a but that said, I do think there's value to being in one of these cities, especially early in your career. Yeah. And then branching out. You need to get a few kind of like big wins in your network who can help you meet other people. And I mean, once you have a few of those, I think that most of the work is done. And then you can just like meet friends of friends and you're good to go. Exactly. But the easiest way to start to get those big wins, I think, is by being in one of those cities and making friends there. Yep, exactly. All right. So going on from the discussion of kind of like individual cities and where uh, ability concentrates, he's got a, a chapter here about how geography is destiny. And he kind of what he talks about here is that where jobs disappear, society starts to fall apart. And that we can, I mean, we can see this a lot in cities where they've lost a ton of jobs like Detroit and a few others he mentions in here that had massive kind of falling outs in their economy. But we've got this issue where Americans now move across state lines and change jobs at much lower rates than any point in the last several decades. So uh, he says the annual rate of interstate relocation dropped from about 3.5% of the population in 1970 to about 1.6% 1 in 2015. So people are moving around less than half as often as they used to. And I think what he kind of gets at with that is that people are sort of both stuck in these cities where they can't really like get out or do anything uh, and also concentrating in a few of these main cities like he talked about before. Right. And the one thing he mentions here is that there's this idea in startups that when things start going very badly for a company, the strongest people leave first. And so it seems like in a lot of these areas of the country, things are going badly and the smartest young people get out first, right? Because they leave, they have the means to leave, they have skills that are in demand, they can go somewhere else. And so that's why you're seeing a lot of this talent and ability exodus from uh, so many of the cities around the country. Right. And my, I mean, my big question from that was that why doesn't he apply that thinking on the national level, right? Because this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with the sovereign individual stuff. If it seems like, you know, America is going to enter a point where 80% of the population is just this uh, useless class that needs to live off of UBI, why won't the top 10 to 1% of income earners and skilled people leave to go somewhere else where they don't have to subsidize, you know, 250 million people to live off of benefits. That was my big question there. So I think like, uh, well, I guess we can bring up what he responded to in his, in his tweet. Yeah. So you asked basically that question on Twitter, right? And his response, um, he gave a few different answers in, in the response, but I'll just read it. So he said, biggest market in the world, best high-end education and services, 
other major societies have higher uh, VATs and taxes anyway. Inertia, patriotism, after you have a certain amount of money, it doesn't touch you day to day. So I would say of those, the only answer that actually makes sense to me, and obviously it could be my own ignorance, but um, the only <laughs> the only answer that makes sense to me is the biggest market in the world answer in combination with a VAT. So um, for those who aren't familiar, like VAT stands for value add tax. And that basically just means if you do business in that country. So if you know somebody buys something in that country, they pay it that whatever that VAT is. So like we deal with it in the UK right now. So every basically every transaction we do in the UK, we both have to charge VAT and we pay VAT. So his point of biggest market in the world is like if you want to sell things to people in America, you'll have to pay that tax whether or not you're located elsewhere. Right. Because like Unlimited Brewing is not a UK company. Um, we're an American company, but the invoices that we issue in like that are two UK based customers, they have to add a VAT to it. And then we have to pay that out to the UK government. So apparently there's a tracking for that because they they will file with the UK government or something mm-hmm. for remittance or there's some there's some terminology for it where they basically get to deduct that from their income or something. I guess. Yeah, you wouldn't pay taxes on taxes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's something where they're filing so it gets tracked. And yeah, there's some there's basically some way that like they're keeping track of everything and then we just pay out at the end of the year for whatever VAT we collected. But basically the idea is that to do business in that country, you pay this tax and that applies it's like a national sales tax that just applies on every transaction with as far as I've seen, no exceptions. But I could be wrong about that. So, yeah, that's the the only answer he gave in there that I was like, I could see that solving like the sovereign individual side, at least to some level, still not 100 percent perfect, but would just be like keeping access to the American market unless like everybody just left. Right. If everybody left, then that doesn't really apply either. Yeah, I guess because I mean, there's two considerations. One is buying things and one is selling things. Right. So I don't see it affecting the selling so much. Right. Because people will want to maintain access to that economy. Exactly. But buying things as an individual, like if you can move to another country where you're not paying that and you can still have a good cost of living like that could be attractive definitely especially if we see some of these like city state micro countries pop up around the world catering to those individuals right which i I think undoubtedly we will yeah and i I think we're certainly going to see that in the next few decades and so i I wasn't 100% satisfied with this answer, to be honest. I, I get the biggest market in the world for businesses. That's going to affect it. Although, is is that true? Isn't China a bigger market than the US? I don't think but in terms of raw dollars, no. In terms of raw dollars? Yeah, I think, well, definitely per capita, for sure, we're highest, well, higher than China. But I don't know. Let's see, actually. Let's just look that up. Um, what, what metric will we use? Just GDP? I don't know. I found a article called The World's Top Economy, the US versus China in five charts. So, yeah, our GDP per capita is significantly higher. Gross national income is very slightly higher for them. Our GDP is quite a bit higher. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we are still the biggest. I also wonder if maybe China is a little harder to get into. Probably. Well, get into in the sense that, like, uh, well, there's number one, like, the language barrier. Then it's, like, so much more regulated even. Yeah, it's just, like, I don't know, it just feels like a tougher one to break into but that's probably again my ignorance with having not done business there have you done any business there or no no i would uh, i did business with one chinese company it was the worst professional experience in my life so i'm not 
<laughs> you're not eager to I, i'm now extremely racist against all chinese businesses forever so <laughs> i think that's a reasonable response to that situation <laughs> it's also the controversial statement of the episode that we should ah, yes <laughs> so we need one per episode that, that's how we keep attracting new people exactly yep <laughs> <laughs> the outrage listens that we'll get <laughs> no i think the i mean the city state thing that's really interesting and then i i do think that if you don't count the city states though uh, it's hard to find another country that like adequately gives you access right to like all the kinds of customers and then also just not having higher taxes or other issues to deal with. Right. Like I was thinking like the UK is, is worse from that standpoint, right? There's like higher taxes. Yeah, and, it's what, 20%? Yeah. 20% VAT, something like that. 20% VAT. And then their income, I mean, their income tax is supposedly slightly lower on the higher income brackets. But still, when you add that 20% VAT, so, and then the EU... The EU is like that too. Same exact thing. The EU is like that too. But I don't think South does Southeast Asia have any kind of value add tax. I don't know actually. Yeah, because that those are more of the places I'm thinking of than Europe. You know, I would not expect people to leave the U.S. to go to Europe because of taxes and things like that. But oh yeah, it looks like most Southeast Asian countries have some VAT, but it's fairly low. Yeah, so it wouldn't be like a deterrent, like if it was like, what, like 5% or something? Most of them are 5 to 12%. Yeah, so not as bad as 20. Yeah, not as bad as 20. Plus, you can pay cash for so many things there. Yeah, well, I was going to say the thing you also have to consider is that like, so you go to the UK, right? Let's say you spend like, I don't know, $20 on a meal, and then you add 20% VAT, right? So you're talking about four Mm -hmm. extra dollars. Whereas if you're spending like $5 on a meal... And then it's a 20% VAT, right? It's like $6. So. Yep. So, I mean, I do think it is consideration because also when I tweeted it, uh, my friend Connor, who left the U.S. to live in Colombia three years ago, you know, he responded and he's like, people are already doing this, right? There's a big community of people in uh, Medellin that are just choosing to live there instead because you can get a much better cost of living. Uh, if you run an internet business, you don't need to be in the U.S. And, you know, Yang is right that they will still have to pay the VAT on the business they do in the U.S., but most of their discretionary spending is now in the Colombian economy. Right, exactly. So their food and their meals. And- yeah, exactly. Food, meals, rent, all of it. And so even though there's still some of that VAT coming in, a lot of it is gone. And obviously, taxes and everything are much lower <laughs> right? because you're living in a much cheaper economy and you're still a U.S. citizen, so you don't have to pay Colombian taxes. And if you play your cards right you don't have to pay u.s income taxes either so it's fairly easy system to get around yep so just before we move on from that one my other question though is going to be from a i guess playing devil's advocate a little bit um i know for a while we were hearing a lot of talk of like oh a lot everyone's going to like leave california and go to texas because of like the state income tax differences right Mm -hmm. and obviously we have like you and i both know people who have (laughs) obviously you're leaving like new york for texas right um do you know an aggregate like, is it a significant amount of income that has left California? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I'm like, I obviously have like anecdotal examples as you do as well. But yeah, I'm curious, like that type of flight, right? Because that's such an easier transition than going to Southeast Asia. Yeah. Like you're a two hour flight from everybody, right? <laughs> you could, even if you live in Texas, you can visit New York or visit California pretty easily. I mean, I think this is where his best point might actually be inertia. Mm. that people will just sort of stick around and deal with it because they don't want to go through the pain in the ass of moving. As long as it's not too bad. Yeah. 
it, it has to be, you know, it can be bad and people can get annoyed and stuff, but they won't actually do anything about it. Right. Which, to be fair, is kind of what we usually see. People get all riled up like, oh, I'm moving to Canada if Trump gets elected. And then like, right. nobody nobody actually moves to Canada. Right. Like, let me ask you, if they added like a 5% VAT tomorrow, like I probably wouldn't really notice. Yeah, that that's the thing, too, is I think a lot of certain people would notice right but certain people would notice yeah not many people who are listening to the podcast well taking it back right let's say let's say it was a five percent vat but then they added ubi right or ten percent vat or whatever right five hundred dollars a month in ubi yeah like something like that right so the people who would notice would also be getting probably more back i would imagine yeah you'd have to you'd have to spend more than ten thousand a month to lose out on that plan right it's a pretty good deal. Which I don't even spend ten thousand a month. So. No, I don't spend ten grand a month <laughs> yeah. either. Yeah. I mean, I guess business expenses, but not personal stuff. Yeah, I guess yeah. If you exclude those, if it's just personal, then no. But then it ends up being net positive. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I was thinking about that was as you were saying the inertia thing. It's like how high would it need to get? Because you're right. People did say that about Trump as well. They were like, when Trump gets ele- if Trump gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. And like, I personally don't know anybody who actually moved to Canada. Maybe there's some people, but. I don't know them. Yeah, I don't know anybody who moved abroad because of the election. And I think you kind of know that those people aren't actually <laughs> going to do it, right? Right. It's more they're saying. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that is the question is if it would actually be enough of a motivator for people to do anything about it. I guess like how bad would it need to get, right? Like would it be like 25% where we're like, oh, no, this is this is unacceptable? Or would it be like, I don't know, like what's the number basically, right? <laughs> where it just becomes. Yeah, where it actually becomes untenable. Yeah, for the people who I think would, um, well, because, okay, going back to the point of like extreme stun, right? Like the people who are generating the most money seems to be concentrating. Well, maybe it's always been concentrated, but it just feels like that effect is definitely becoming uh, heightened. So it's like, how high would it have to be for those people to be like, okay, this is so annoying that like, I can't stay here. I think if they did the tax on income, right, I think it's easier for somebody to feel that uh, versus consumption. I don't know. I just feel like because income tax in the highest brackets in places like California and New York, it's already like approaching or above 50% depending on your bracket. Yeah, very true. Especially if it's income and not dividends or not business income, right? Like if it's straight up W2 where you can't even take too many deductions and stuff off of it. Like, yeah, it's like, I mean, how high could that go? Like if it was 75%, like I feel like people would just be like, fuck this, right? Like, yeah, like three out of four of my dollars are going to the government. That would be like back in, it was one of the wars, after one of the wars we had that happen, it got that high. Yeah. Well, and then the thing we haven't even talked about yet, which is one of our favorite topics, cryptocurrencies. Crypto, yeah, that's the other big one to me that just seems like a could throw a huge wrench in this whole thing. Because if, you know, one, if there's a VAT, then there's more incentive to move more of your spending into untraceable you know, money because it's like, I mean, and there'd be no reason for businesses not to do this. They just say, Hey, you can pay the full price with VAT or you can pay me in Bitcoin and just pay like a 1% convenience fee, right? Do you want to pay an extra 10% or 1%? (laughs) And many people will say 1%. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As long as there are enough merchants doing that, then you just keep paying each other in crypto and you're much better off. Right. I mean, I, I think about it. I think about it with my business, right? And if you know, let's say that we charge an average client, you know, it's okay. So we normally do like 8k a month, but let's say it's 10k for ease, 
right? If we add a 10% VAT on that, there's an extra thousand dollars a month we have to charge people. Right. Or, you know, I can charge them. And that doesn't even go to you. It doesn't even go to me. No, it doesn't go to anything. Right. But I could charge them an extra like hundred a month, take it in Bitcoin cash or something, and then use that to pay the freelancers, right? Who we're dealing with, most of whom are around the world and would probably prefer to receive money in crypto since it doesn't have to go through the exchanges, right? Like the currency exchange where they're going to lose like 5% of the value anyway. So everyone's better off. Yep. Plus, I'm not paying any taxes on the income collected through crypto because it's untraceable. So no VAT and no income tax. Exactly. And I think as that economy becomes more prevalent, because like I think uh, even the, the issue is really like when it gets converted into dollars, right? Then you got to trace it. And there's probably going to be ways that that can get solved too. But let's just say, let's just say that's the only issue. Well, that means the more things you can just transact in, in Bitcoin or whatever, you know, whatever the currency is, right? Like without having to convert it back into dollars, the more untraceable that's going to be. Yeah. And the less transactions that'll be subject to the VAT in the first place. Yeah. I don't know how you solve for that though unless you just say like well i hope people don't do that <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, i don't know what other response you have to that that issue because well i think uh yeah well i totally agree with you i think honestly if like the ux of cryptocurrencies got easier that would be just game changing which i think it will like i don't think that's any it's not an if it's a when yeah, like I feel like the people who actually use cryptocurrencies are people in sort of our segment. But you know, if they got it so where like I don't know, someone's grandma could use it, that it would be over. <laughs> that that's going to be the big thing is when you can use it more places, like an app, right? Yeah, an app. Yeah, and especially I think when you'll be able to use it seamlessly without even having to really know anything about crypto, right? Because that seems like the big impediment, exactly, right now. And I, I know there are some apps that do this where you can like send cash to people overseas and it's doing the transaction through a cryptocurrency on the back end, but you never have to actually interact with anything crypto related. Is that TransferWise? Is that one of them? I don't think TransferWise is using crypto. Are they? That would be kind of cool. I don't know. I don't, I've just seen their rates are like really good. Yeah, their their rates are insane. Like everybody that I work with internationally uses them. Uh, does TransferWise use crypto? Let's find out. I was just wondering how they get such good rates. Like that's yeah, <laughs> seems like one way to do it. Oh, so it's not using blockchain either. Hmm. I guess they just do like extremely low arbitrage or something. Yeah, I'm. I have no idea. Maybe I mean honestly, it might just be that TransferWise is holding the money and making their own exchange rate. Right. Mm -hmm. That's possible. And so they can do it extremely cheap because they're using all online stuff and no humans doing much of the work. Right. Just better economies of scale. Exactly. Like I, I could see that. Yeah. And then I guess it's it's also a winner take all effect because more and more people will use it, like because you're sending money to somebody else, right? Like Yeah, exactly. Like you probably found out about it through one of your clients, I'm guessing. Yeah, I found out about it through freelancers who were uh I think the first international guy we hired was working in London and he preferred to get paid through it. And then I guess like it's not as big in the US anymore or yet. But it's much bigger internationally because as soon as I told the other freelancers about it, they were like, oh, my gosh, yes, I'm so glad that you use it. And so that was like a good, easy way to win brownie points with them. Yeah. And actually, you know what? Uh, Andres uses it, too. We were paying him through PayPal and we switched to uh, TransferWise. And I think I think with PayPal, he would lose like 3% and TransferWise, it's less than 1%. So it's wow. a pretty significant Big difference. improvement. Yeah. 
but yeah, I don't know. I, the crypto stuff is, it's like an interesting question that there's no way for us to answer in just like talking about it. Right. Right. And, and I think that's the biggest or the best response to these two issues. One, the sovereign individual question and two, the crypto question is, you know, like one, those are going to be problems whether or not UBI and a VAT and stuff get put in place. Right. Like, those will just be issues regardless. And two, there's really no way to test for them. And to my knowledge, no alternative answer that considers them, right? Because I don't think that they disqualify UBI as a good solution to these problems. Right. They present issues for it. So they mostly just like cause concern without any like there's no way to hedge against them is basically what I'm saying, right? There's like nothing you can do. Right. Well, it's also better than the status quo. And it is better than the status quo, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the status quo, it's kind of like, hey, this is guaranteed disaster. Um, we can do this. And yeah, there are some issues with it, which is, I think kind of how he concludes, right? I mean, that's the, the sense I got, at least at the end, was he's not saying this is like, okay, the be all, end all, perfect solution. There's no flaws with it. It's just like, this is kind of definitely better than what we currently have if we keep this up. Yeah, agreed. That that did feel like a big part of what he's getting to at the end. Yeah, I mean, I wish he could talk more about crypto in here or some of those issues. Probably didn't want to like. Well, that's what that's what I was going earlier, where I was saying it kind of reminded me of some of the. Was that part of the uh, the Patreon bonus material uh, where I was talking about the Obama book? Uh, yes, you're talking about the yeah. Obama book. Yeah. So if you want to hear what Neil was talking about, then you'll have to support us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Made You Think. Exactly, but yeah, basically, I think he probably didn't want to complicate his message. Yeah, that type of stuff. I'm sure he's thought about it. I mean, he's in this community, like, right? I'm sure, he's heard that criticism <laughs> before. Like, yeah, and and to be fair, the only criticisms he includes in the book are ones that he has a nice, clean answer to. Exactly. I think that the sovereign individual and the crypto questions are both ones where you kind of have to go like, well, I hope that doesn't happen, right? Which wouldn't be very, uh, I think, convincing in the book format. Right. I think like the the yeah the crypto one is a big one. Um, I mean, I'm curious if we can get a good answer for that at some point. Yeah, me too. And if someone's read something else that answers that question, like definitely send it over to us. We're super curious about this. I think it comes up probably once every other episode or something. Yeah, yeah, it comes up a ton. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think we've kind of beaten that part to death. So we should probably get on to the last section of the book here. Yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't mention or we started talking about with esports, we'll, we'll get to the last section as well. But um, just real quickly, the video games part. Yeah. Like the numbers there are pretty <laughs> wild. Yeah. What is it? So, yeah, for, I'll just read this. I'll just read this from the book. From 2004 to 2007, young unemployed men without college degrees were spending 3.4 hours per week playing video games. By 2011 to 2014, the average time spent per week had more than doubled to 8.6 hours. Just a lot, a lot. But then uh, there were some anecdotes he gave of people who were playing like 40 hours a week. Yeah. Which is basically like a full time job. <laughs> you know, the thing that this is one answer I've never gotten. I've never gotten a satisfactory answer on this from anyone involved in esports. But mm -hmm. this feels like the primary audience, right, is like young men effectively. Yeah. And the older men are seem to be more of the unemployed type as well. So the, the question I have on that is like they always make a lot of the comparisons to like, oh, it's going to be the same kind of ad revenue as, you know, football or basketball or soccer or any of the sort of major sports. But the reason those advertising dollars are there is because the audiences have money, right, that you're trying to get to. Whereas in these instances, like, I don't know, man, like a young unemployed man without a college degree, I 
don't think that person has a ton of extra money to advertise stuff to. Yes and no. I mean, it doesn't... They have UBI, maybe. but Well, and also, I mean, if they're watching ads on Twitch and stuff, then that is a source of revenue from them too, right? Like making money from their attention. I mean, we can do some back of the napkin math here too, right? Like, Well, I'm just saying like you, you go one level past that, right? So okay. like they're watching ads. So their, their attention is being monetized, mm-hmm. right? But like the reason people are paying for those ads in the first place is because they're trying to sell something through those ads, right? Right. So like, for example, um, this is probably the easiest example. Like tennis gets a ridiculous amount of sponsorship revenue, not because there's so many people watching it, but because the income of the people watching it tends to be really high. And same thing with golf. Okay. So like, it's kind of similar where like, I mean, tennis players make a ton of money. If you start looking at the numbers, you like the top players are making like, you know, NBA level or NFL level. Well, I think closer to NBA level, actually higher than NFL level salaries, but it's only for like the top 10, 15 players, right? Not everybody. But the only reason they're able to do that is because like the brands that pay to sponsor these tournaments are paying huge sums of money because they know that you know, the audience watching it can afford to buy like a Rolex, right? So like Rolex is a big sponsor because <laughs> like Rolex is not going to go sponsor the NFL, for example. Right. It just doesn't make sense. So yeah, it's like basically that's where I was going, right? So like the reason for their audience size, they're able to attract such dollars is because of the income of their audience. So I was thinking like if you take a, you know, the, the probably I would guess, I mean, I could be totally off here, but like the average income of an esports audience member is probably less than like the audience of an NBA watcher even, maybe. I mean, I could be wrong, but yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, actually. There might be better stats out there for that. But if that was the case, then I don't see the ad dollars ever catching up. Yeah, that's probably true. It doesn't mean they won't play video games, but the industry itself might not grow, right, to like the level that the projections are. But I think the the difference with that, though, is that a average watcher let's say that a typical football watcher during you know peak season watches three hours a week right sure and let's say that you know an average video game player also plays like three hours per week the video game player who plays three hours per week is most likely spending anywhere from probably at the low end ten dollars to you know fifty or a hundred dollars a month on video game stuff mostly like in-game purchases right yep so is the attention of the football watcher worth 10 to 100 dollars a month at 12 hours so that would be about i mean that would be up to 10 dollars an hour of their attention definitely not right yeah so that's a good point that seems like it's way more monetizable because of the engagement aspect right it's not just ads and also the ability to have the in-game purchases. Right. I mean, did you see the stats about Fortnite? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah, so Fortnite makes more per user than Snapchat, Google, and Facebook combined. I like don't understand. This is a random tangent, but I do not understand why Fortnite is popular. Have you played it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I just like It feels like a worse version of Call of Duty. No, dude, it's far superior version of Call of Duty. No. Yes. No, no. I disagree. I don't like that there's only like the one map. I don't know. There's just not enough like variation. I mean, maybe I haven't played it enough to get like addicted. Yeah. Or to get really get hooked by it. Because granted, Call of Duty, the first few times you play it is not fun either. You kind of have to at least jump in for like dedicate for a little bit of time. True. <laughs> before you get hooked. But yeah, I, I at least in my couple games that I tried, I was like, I don't I don't get this. This is actually really crazy. I'm looking at a chart of it. Fortnite has gone from zero to three hundred and eighteen million dollars in monthly revenue in eight months. 
Jeez. <laughs> We're in the wrong business. Yeah, seriously. That is bonkers. That's wild. Anyway, yeah, video games can make a lot of money. And I think this is part of the real and fairly accurate concern, I would imagine, that if you give this amount of money to people, they will, you know, especially like young men who don't have other creative outlets, they will play a lot of video games. And I think Harari, Yuval Harari has talked about this a lot too. And I've heard it more from him in like articles than in the actual books in Sapiens or Homo Deus, uh, if you want to check out our episodes. But he, he basically says, he's got one great article where he is basically saying that the useless class is just going to move into video games and VR supported by UBI. And part of his argument for that is that that's what we've been doing for all of history anyway, that for the last 2000 years, well, for zero through 1900, uh, common era, pretty much all of the bottom 80-90% of the world lived in like a VR game called religion. And, you know, you like pray to God and go to church and, you know, give donations and stuff. And you like earn imaginary points with this like imaginary thing, right? And that's that was the VR game that most people were playing for most of history. And now they're just gonna be playing a different game in like a different medium, right? It's not really that big of a societal shift. It just feels different because it's tech and not, you know, a book. Yep. I, I agree with that. And that feels fairly compelling. Like I, I buy that argument, right? And I can see how if you don't have a creative outlet for your time and energy, you want to do something where you feel like you are making progress and being rewarded, right? Because video games do do that. They do a great job of that where you can sit down for 15 to 60 minutes and you know you'll have some satisfaction at the end of it. Even if you don't win, right? You at least like tried and you made some kind of progress. Right. But if you're, if you're a cashier, right? That's like the most boring video game ever created. You know, it would be considered punishment to make someone play that game for eight hours a day. Right. So why would you, yeah. why would you go do that if you can stay home and play Fortnite? Right. Well, I also think it's a great way to prevent like the social unrest, right? That might come yeah. from large groups of people not working. I mean, shit, the last thing that we want is a bunch of unemployed, dissatisfied young men roaming around the country with like nothing to do. That's like a recipe for disaster. That seems like a Mad Max prequel or something. I was going to say that that seems like a like ISIS-esque precursor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, I mean, that seems to be like a prerequisite of having an organization like that take over. Like, I mean, that's what happened apparently in Iraq, right? Like there just weren't jobs at all, you know, well, for many different reasons. Right. But then if you're a young man with nothing else, right, you just, I don't know, it just seems like you would seek out sort of, for lack of a better word, an adventure. Right. And I think a video game can give you that as well. Yeah. Well, it definitely does. They're designed to give you that. Yeah. Well, it's like a lack of stimulation, right? People who are unstimulated kind of like get bored and then will start acting out in order to relieve the boredom, right? It's like that's why young boys in elementary school and stuff will act out because they're not stimulated. They're like having to sit still for eight hours a day, which is totally unnatural, right? If I keep Pepper inside with no exercise for eight hours a day, she turns into an asshole, right? <laughs> like it's understandable <laughs> that this is just sort of what would happen if you don't give people some means of, you know, stimulation and satisfaction. Right. And I think you can't expect that everyone is going to become marathon runners, right? And go out jogging for two hours every morning to give themselves that. The right. games do it better. Yep, definitely. So I don't know. I, I think we will see the video games become much bigger 
deal in the next couple decades. And maybe it's not such a bad thing. Maybe it's just the best option. Yeah, I mean, it's as you said, it's probably the better alternative than having large groups of men roaming around yeah. with nothing to do. I like his other alternative, though. I guess it's not an alternative, but the the other thing that he talks about here where you can earn kind of like social credit for doing stuff. Yeah, that was a cool idea. I like that idea a lot. I would love to see it implemented, you know, in a city to start off with. I think if you got like a good, you know, young hippie city like Austin to try it out, it'd probably go pretty well. And I mean, basically, the idea is that everybody in a city can get on this app and you can earn social credits by doing things for other people in the city. And it sounds like a roughly one man hour is a social credit. So if you take an hour to go help somebody set up their Wi-Fi router, right, then you earn a social credit. I think he's got to multiply that by like 100, right? Because I won't right. I won't get out of bed for one credit, but I get out of bed for 100 credits, even though, you know, they're made up currency. I was going to say it depends on what one could buy you. But yeah, I guess I see what you mean. Like the psychological yeah, it, part of it. It has nothing to do with what it can buy me. It is just the psychological aspect of like, oh, just one credit. That's lame. But a oh, hundred credits, right? Yeah. It's, it's like when you go to countries that had, you know, some bad inflation in the past and you get the dollar bills and you're just like, whoa, I have a million dollar bill. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I don't know where it was. I think in Vietnam. I went out to dinner and spent a million dongs and I was just like, this feels kind of badass. I know it doesn't mean anything, but it feels <laughs> kind of cool. <laughs> and it, it was only it was only like a hundred dollars US, right? It's not it's not like we were actually spending a crazy amount of money. Right. But it's like, have you ever spent a million on a meal? I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just don't specify the currency. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I liked that idea. I mean, I think that was one thing that was pretty compelling. The other thing you had here that I hadn't thought about before, but was how adding UBI is kind of like an economic stimulus package for every small city. Yeah. Or it gives us example of if you've got a town of 5,000 people in Missouri and everyone is struggling to get by, starting a bakery might not be that attractive. But if you add UBI to a city with 5,000 people, that's an extra $60 million going into that town next year, right? Which is a lot of money. Yeah. Especially for a fairly poor area. You could almost, you could probably be doubling the discretionary spending of that city. And then it becomes way more possible to start these businesses like bakeries or uh, a lot of the other service things we've talked about so far on this episode. So there, there may actually be some light local entrepreneurship aspect to this where you will feel more comfortable doing this stuff because there's more of that money floating around in the local economy. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And then, I mean, it's also just the... Um Think about like, well, he gave, yeah, I don't think we have it here, but the Chinese restaurant example where like they hadn't repaired like the toilet. Right. Right. Yeah. It didn't make sense to. Yeah. He's giving this an example of a restaurant in a, in like, I guess I forget which city, but it was a city that had been hit pretty hard. And, and he was like initially, you know, kind of taken aback that of how bad the bathroom was. But then he realized probably this guy who owns this restaurant is thinking like, oh, well, next year there's gonna be fewer customers than this year. So like, why would I invest in repairs? Right. There's just like no reason to what I was thinking is like, OK, if you have a stimulus like that, perhaps you would do some of those like repairs that you've kept putting off. But then that's going to stimulate like obviously, let's say for a toilet, you need to like hire like a plumber or somebody or like, you know, a technician of some sort. And then, you, you know, that person now has more money to go spend on baked goods. Right. And it just becomes yeah. like, well, the word economic or the term economic stimulus is probably the, the right term. And the cool thing about this is it's continuous. Right. So it's not a like here's a one time aid package. This is like a continuous sort of amount that goes into the economy. And I think the the thing that if you really look at it like a system, right, is like increasingly as um, 
more and more things, I guess, get concentrated in, as, as he was talking about into like San Francisco, New York, and some of these other cities, all the other services that they pay for are their money going into these other cities, right? Like when you pay for your Netflix subscription, it's like your money from wherever you live going to Netflix, which is, I think, based in San Francisco. Am I right? Right about that? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So it's like going there. Whereas, um, if you have a UBI, then some money at least is going back into the system, you know, right. where it came from. So there's something something to be said there that maybe it would at least stop the sort of um, fleeing of all the wealth from a lot of these areas. Yeah, which is definitely like one of the problems that would have to be solved is getting the money out of these major cities and into some of the less developed ones, which is actually why there is some good to Trump's tax plan, right, where he removed the option to uh, deduct your state income because mm. that mostly punishes these cities right right if we look at if we look at the list of you know New York SF LA Chicago DC Boston LA SF New York and Chicago all have super high state income taxes right and a lot of the less well developed states don't so it does provide some economic incentive to move to the areas that need the human capital more. Right. Um, I think there, you know, there's also the reasonable criticism that he was punishing liberal states, but you know, you, you kind of can't do one without the other. There aren't a lot of Republican developed states. Right. Right. Are there any? I guess Texas. Well, the one you're moving to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess Texas counts. Yeah, but I see what you're saying. Like, there is a need to kind of change that and in, you know in that sense ubi is actually a little bit more similar to letting people decide what they would do with money because i was i was going to say if you let's say had like a direct tax and then and then the mm -hmm. government decided where to put that money like oh we're going to do a infra like national infrastructure build or something right the issues with that is like the government can be wrong about something like that right, right? And <laughs> the wrong thing to do with the money and then now it's gone and wasted um, whereas in this case, right, it's kind of like, Hey, we're just going to give it to people and they can spend it on what they choose to spend it on. And I mean, I don't know, there's something like kind of that it feels more bottom up than a straight up tax and spend plan would, would feel like. Yeah. I liked, I liked that part a lot when you mentioned it with Alaska. And yeah, I think yep. that's also a really good way to sell it to both sides of the aisle, right? You can sell it to liberals by saying okay this is something that helps you know the needy right and you know gives aid to the parts of the country that need it most and you help conservatives by saying this is a way to reduce government control over your money right it's like right. you're still gonna have to pay taxes but it's going back into your hands instead of into like the governments and you know then they have less power right so it kind of is appealing to both sides of the aisle if it's framed the right way right you can you can get both sides to see the merit yeah, and because I think the Texas senator or governor who implemented that that plan was a Republican. He said it was uh, it supported conservative values by providing a check on government control of the money in the state, something like that. Which is a good selling point. Yeah, it's a good selling point. Yeah. So I think the last thing maybe, and I know we're running out of time, so we can only touch on this briefly, but that we didn't get to too much is how providing welfare to such a large part of the country increases the risk of totalitarianism. Mm, yeah. Which was in an article that I think you sent me that I found really compelling, where it basically points out that 
we have a symbiotic relationship with the government because we need them for protection and cohesion, but they need us for taxes. And our main check against the government is our ability to stop paying taxes, you know, and or leave. And if the majority of the country is no longer, you know, really paying into a meaningful portion of the tax pool, does that reduce their check against government, you know, corruption and authority? I, I don't know, right? I mean, the nice thing with the VAT is that everyone is paying into it a little bit, right? It's not just like extra tax on the top 1%. So, you know, everyone is still kind of having some skin check the against game. the government. Yeah, some skin in the game, right? Because <laughs> they're still buying things. But there, there is that element of if you rely on the government to keep sending you a check every month, you are less able to, you know, one, leave, right? Because you're going to be used to that. And two, to like push back against the government because they could just say, you know, I'm going to take your UBI away. Yeah, it's a much more, uh, it's a much less symbiotic relationship. It's much more one way then. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a valid concern. We should definitely link to that article. I'll find it and we can link to it in the, in the show notes, which are at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. That's true. Because uh, here's an interesting thought experiment, right? Andrew Yang gets elected president. By the way, he is running for president. I don't know if we mentioned that, but he's running in 2020 against Trump. We have not mentioned that, actually. Yeah. And I think that's part of the the onus for this book is he's he's going to run really as like a somewhat single issue candidate, it seems that this is the main thing he wants to get done is UBI. Right. But, you know, here is something you can imagine. Uh, Andrew gets elected and he implements UBI. Everyone's happy. We get to 2023. And it looks like Andrew Yang is going to leave or going to lose reelection. And then he gets on TV and says, if you don't reelect me, I will get rid of UBI before I'm out of office with a presidential veto. Right. right? Which, you know, I, I okay, he can't veto it, but he could maybe do an executive action to get rid of it. Right. right. You can imagine him building into the law the ability for a president to revoke it right worse than that even just the threat of it right like yeah even the threat of it and then you've got like half the country that now relies on this to have any comfortable standard of living and they're like well shit we have to vote for him now and suddenly america has a dictator right i'm not saying that would happen but that is the kind of leverage that something like this gives the government which I think would be reasonably scary. Well, and I think you can take that even one step higher up and look at like every benefit, right? It's like I was talking about this with somebody. It's like the benefits never go down if you look over time, right? Yeah, that's true. They only in a democracy, they only seem to go like in one direction, right? Like the New Deal was kind of not, I mean, at least from what I know about it, it wasn't necessarily meant to be like, here's this thing is going to be forever. It's kind of like to solve a problem that was the Great Depression. But then, of course, like that it didn't get like revoked after, right? Because now there's a whole, there was a whole lot of people relying on it and, you know, maybe for good reason. But I could see that obviously happening for UBI, but in the, as you said, like to the biggest extreme where you now have leverage over like half the country. Yeah. I don't think it'll happen. Andrew seems like a good guy, but it could, right? Well, and it's not even about Andrew, right? It's about whoever occupies that office would then have the leverage to do something like that. Um, which means it's just a matter of time, right? If that's if that's possible, <laughs> yeah, it's just a yeah. matter of time. <laughs> Although I, I guess the the reasonable response to that would be that no president has done that with Social Security yet, right? Right. So although you could argue that nobody has ever gotten elected who was threatening to get rid of Social Security, that's yeah, I see what you mean. Um, right. So like no one would ever win an election by making that argument. Um, although you could say that like 
once they got elected, they could do something like that. But yeah, well, no, but like they could threaten to get rid of it if they don't get reelected, right? Right. That's, That's sort of the point. hypothetical I'm imagining, and that, yeah. as far as I know, has never happened. So is that because of Congress? Is that because Congress is a check on that? There must be something. I'm guessing Social Security was put in by an act of Congress. So maybe I mean, maybe there's no way for if basic income is written the same way, maybe there's no way a president could just unilaterally get rid of it. And I think an altruistic president would want to create it in such a way that it's very hard to get rid of. Right. The, The thing that I would worry about most is that, you know, especially with how divided we are politically these days, he would try so hard to push it through that a much weaker version of it would get through that doesn't actually really solve the problem kind of like Obamacare and that could make things like not worse off but like such a small fix that we kind of disregard the problem like we still have a really big healthcare problem in the US but I think there's some sense in government at least it's like oh we solved the healthcare thing we don't need to do anything about that now right it's like well no it's still really bad and the the forcing through something half baked, you know, may have actually ended up making things worse in the long run, like second order consequences. So yeah, or may, maybe makes it harder to fix in the future. Too. Yeah, that too. Mm. So yeah, but hopefully we can talk about it with him more. This is a good episode. I'm glad we did this book. Yeah, I think uh, this is a topic that was definitely worth getting into the weeds on. Yeah, and yeah, maybe there will be a part two. In maybe. The if you want to hear more about our some of our thoughts related to the book and other stuff, uh, you can get the bonus material for this episode at patreon.com slash made you think. Uh, we've also got some other stuff there, including our detailed highlights and notes from the book. So uh, you should buy it. You should support Andrew. Uh, running for president is expensive, but you can also get our highlights <laughs> if you want to start there. That might be helpful. And I guess they can go to the Patreon page. So yes patreon.com slash made you think we got to say it a lot of times to make sure everyone remembers what it is exactly like those those uh infomercial radio people that's patreon.com slash made you think (laughs) one more time folks write it down made you think three words (laughs) maybe if you if you subscribe in the next 10 minutes yeah (laughs) you'll receive Uh, not one but two cheese graters it's (laughs) quite the deal folks Maybe if our Patreon gets high enough, we can hire somebody like that. Yeah, exactly. So we can do little voiceovers. Yeah. Oh, and actually, you know, I gotta, I gotta upload this week's bonus material from our uh, Aristotle episode. We had a bunch of bonus materials, so mm. that was a good one, actually. And that's the thing too is when you join the Patreon, you get all of the back bonus material too. So all of the book notes, all of our bonus recordings, everything. So you should go ahead and check that out. But regardless of whether or not you check out Patreon, you can also leave a review for this show on iTunes. That is probably one of the best ways to uh, support the show, get it into the ears of more people. It helps us show up as a recommended podcast for other podcasts. Uh, It'll make it easier to get guests to come on in the future. It makes us feel good. It'll make our mothers proud of us. It's a great way to support everything that we're doing here. So uh, I think if you just go to iTunes and search Made You Think, uh, you can leave reviews on Stitcher too, I believe. iTunes is the big one though. I, there's not honestly that much utility leaving one anywhere else. So just, just go to iTunes and do just it go there. Go to iTunes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can tell your friends, obviously, that's a big one. I think we've grown almost exclusively through word of mouth and Robin Hansen's Twitter account. So Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, keep tweeting about it. Keep tweeting at us. We love 
hearing from you guys and getting your questions and your thoughts and where we miss stuff. A couple of podcast listeners actually responded to Andrew's response to my tweet too. So that was kind of fun. It's like you guys were oh, really? joining <laughs> in with, uh, with an episode author. So that that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, definitely hit us up on Twitter. Maybe if people keep, uh, you know, keep exerting their influence, maybe at some point there will be the made you think bump. Of there we go. Added, you know, talked about on made you think. Unfortunately, many of the authors are not even alive, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I have noticed that for some of the books we talk about, and maybe it's a selection bias thing, but if you look on Amazon, there's like sometimes recommended books that are also ones that we've talked about for the less popular ones. Like what? Like Sovereign Individual? Yeah, Sovereign Individual and Elephant in the Brain are the ones I'm thinking of. Let me see. Because and actually, you know, I wonder if we'll have some effect with this book too, because it only had about 40 reviews at the time of recording. Yeah, so Elephant in the Brain and Skin in the Game are the recommended combo, but that might not be because of us. That seems like a pretty natural combo. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so check us out on Patreon. Check us out on the site if you want email newsletter updates. Honestly, we don't do them that much anymore. Most of that has moved into the Patreon, but you will get occasional information there. Telling you to subscribe to the Patreon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You- <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. And to leave reviews. <laughs> only half You'll be like, oh, this is just like listening to the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> Aside from that, you can check out some deals from our wonderful sponsors at majorthinkpodcast.com slash support. That's where you can find our there the mushroom coffee, the perfect keto ketones, the kettle and fire bone broth, the cup and leaf tea. Uh, and also you can click through to Amazon, buy anything there, and that helps support the show as well. Yeah, I think we got anything else, Neil? No, I think that's it. I think just go read the book, read our show notes, and subscribe on Patreon, of course. Uh, that's where all the cool kids are going these days. It is. So if you want to be a cool kid, you got to go to the Patreon. And if you're curious about Andrew Yang uh, running for president, it's yang2020.com. Ah, yeah. Yep. Potential first Asian president. That would be really interesting. Actually, it would also be interesting if this topic sort of captures the national attention during his run. So um, yeah, also the only other thing I'll add is this is a topic we're definitely interested in. So if there's articles, other books, videos, like whatever, if there's anything that we've, you know, we'd missed or you think that, you know, we would appreciate uh, watching or, or looking at, definitely send that our way. You can do it on Twitter. So I'm at the rail Neil S and I'm at Nat Eliason. And yeah, I think we will see everyone next week. See you guys next week. Bye.